0: Okay, well, I think I've got you for about forty-five minutes, uh, and then some time for some Q and A. Uh, of course, um, wanting if I can uh, thank you again for the introductions, Keith, and uh, it's great to be here. I'd, I'd, I'd actually never visited Southeastern uh, Seminary. It's lovely, not a lovely day out, uh, <coughs> but lovely grounds. Um, and uh, I remember sort of uh, hanging out with uh, Bruce Ashford, uh, walking along the backs. It's called the backs. Uh, in cambridge the behind uh, behind Trinity College, which has a special place in his heart because uh, it was where uh, uh, Wittgenstein was uh, uh, a fellow and um, uh, going through uh, king 's College, taking him through there the pathway designed by Charles Simeon, a uh, great cambridge preacher and and uh, then also sitting with Bruce along uh, the River Cam. Uh, just discussing life and reflecting on uh, ministry and uh, our callings, um, he said, "You know, when you're ever through, come stay uh, at Southeastern." And uh, so I'm, I'm uh, wondering where the heck is he? Uh, no, I know, I know he's since, since, since that leisurely uh, stroll and afternoon we had together uh, as friends, and we've, I've benefited much from his work um, on the mission of the church and uh, missiology, the integration of mission and theology, as well as Uh, theological interpretation of scripture and that that contribution also that Heath Thomas has made to that. Of course, uh, uh, Heath, who will be uh, departing from uh, these parts uh, quite uh, momentarily. But do want to thank, of course, uh, Heath for arranging uh, this, for the California boy to come drop in uh, and give you an academic talk uh, in the midst of my time at UVA and then over to Duke uh, this this, uh, late afternoon. Uh, and also to Justin Orr for uh, arranging uh, all of this. Thank you, Justin. We're, uh, there you are. Um, I want to talk to you, though, about, and if I may, uh, first off, uh, change the topic of my, of my paper. Hope you'll let me do that. To prison church. Prison church toward a theology of Ecclesia Incarcerate. Toward a theology of Ecclesia Incarcerate. Uh, that's what I'm. That's the title I'm going to go with, and I want to talk to you about the problematic of the prison and how to approach it, uh, perhaps theologically, or at least a way to approach it theologically as a cultural artifact, as a cultural structure, as something that's real uh, in the world, uh, and that's. What theology uh, makes emphatic claims to be able to reckon with um, things that are real and to speak to those things, and 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 I must say, boy, we, I mean we've got a we've got a big problem and a very complicated penal history in America, and it's true, of course, of our country as much as it is, um, well. Not only do we have a complicated history uh, of of the prison in our country, but we also have uh, complicated ecclesial histories as well. Um, And how how ecclesiology interacts with what's happening in the prison is a very important uh, conversation to have about Prison. I taught a course this last January at Whittier College, a liberal arts, secular liberal arts college in in the LA area, not far from where I am, in their Jan term, on prison religion. And there's all the rage. I mean, there is a moment of reform right now uh, that uh, folks are trying to uh, figure out what to do with when the president of the United States goes in and visits a federal prison and sits down with federal prisoners to have a conversation that's a that's a new moment uh, in in our nation's history and and sort of what's going on there uh, what's going on with with uh, mass incarceration wh- 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 and, and the different layers of um, what's happening there i was I was waiting yesterday quite a busy few days so I didn't get to catch much of it but uh, was waiting to see what the Pope would say uh, about uh, uh, the prison to Congress uh, and uh, didn't say much just death penalty I guess and I in reading the manuscript. I wish he would have said more about the prison, but, but didn't. Uh, and the Pope is actually a very interesting figure. I was speaking with a criminologist at Berkeley called Jonathan Simon, uh, after a, a, a couple of conference sessions in Sacramento. And he's, Jonathan is Jewish, and uh, but a law professor at, at Berkeley, and does a lot of work on the prison, and, and but his sort of eyes lit up when he learned I was a Christian theologian, and we had, had some correspondence before that, and whilst having lunch, he said, what do you think about the Pope? I said, I don't, what do you mean? Well, I think he's interesting. <laughs> I mean, there he is. Uh, uh, but, you know, I'm not a Catholic. And he said, um, he said well, he, he just announced two things this spring, right? One, that he would, um, uh, of course, that, that, uh, that his papacy would be short, was his, was his prediction. Uh, and also, uh, he announced in anticipation that there would be a year of jubilee The year of Jubilee, last one was John Paul II, I guess early 80s, but there would be a year of Jubilee going from December 8th to 2015, so just a couple months from now, to November 20th, 2016. Now, what that means for prison reform in Europe and Latin America and this country, I have no idea. But we know what it means in the Levitical law all the debts get canceled, all the slaves go free. Right? And special forms of pouring out of, of divine mercy are anticipated, you know. So, something to watch. But let me take you back a little bit further. A couple years ago, uh, 2013, where the Monday Thursday uh, Monday Thursday right of Holy Week, the day before Good Friday, witnessed the then newly enthroned Pontiff of the Catholic Church, Francis holding evening mass at Casal del Marmo, which is a juvenile detention facility in Rome. Youth prisoners. That night, he washed the feet of 12 young people of different nationalities and faiths, including at least two Muslims. And among these were also two girls housed at the facility, one being an Italian Catholic, the other of Serbian Muslim origin, along with a brief homily that he gave, and hugs, and a chocolate Easter egg to each kid, and a traditional Italian Easter cake for each, Pope Francis encouraged the young people with the words, quote, press on. Don't let yourselves be robbed of hope, unquote. The world's changed a lot since that 2013 act, just two years. He's still Pope, of course, uh, but now there's this, this year of jubilee on the horizon. Uh, as you know, that's where slaves and prisoners have gone free, debt's been canceled, divine mercy on display, right? Leviticus 25. Now how this coming year of jubilee will play out in light of recent prison reform efforts, especially in this country, remains unclear, especially for sustainable long-term prison reform, but I'm watching, you should be too. The Christian tradition has extraordinary resources, for addressing matters of justice and forgiveness. I think you all know this. But what seemed conspicuously absent, if I can look back uh, at what the Pope did in spring 2013, the reports and media commentary about the particular event, was that the juveniles he was with had indeed been detained for criminal offenses. The media was quick to acknowledge that many of the juveniles had come from broken families and other disadvantages from which they sought refuge in drugs and crime, And yet nothing seems to have been mentioned at all about the need for justice in society or perhaps for their victims' rights. The rights of their victims. The only critical engagement the media seemed to acknowledge was that which resulted from Pope Francis washing the feet of women and one who was a Muslim. That was sort of the crazy media. Oh, he washed a Muslim's feet. And and the extraordinary thing, and two women's feet. Which was different from previous popes. The event was described alternatively as this, quote, "a display of love for the young people and an invitation to renewal." The actual prison chaplain, uh, Father Gaetano Greco, expressed the, uh, that the Pope's visit,, quote, "will make the juveniles see here's what the hope is that make the juveniles see that their lives are not bound by a mistake." That forgiveness exists, and that they can begin to build their lives again. Now, these reflections from the media clearly represent, on my reading at least, a one-sided perspective. Especially since the church, as societal, as a society, as, as societal public actor, does indeed have conceptual and real resources for comprehensive approaches both to criminality and future flourishing of human beings, especially for youth. And to elucidate how these resources might be reconceived in contemporary punitive settings, the paper that I'm presenting to you this afternoon sets out to survey a number of forms of justice that in varying degrees exist within Western society and coexist then alongside the Western church. My paper will then uh, aim to, uh, uh, it'll briefly survey a selection of religious models that have sought to address various oversights within the penal situation, followed by an argument uh, for a theological vision of the incarcerated church. Okay, so forms of justice. Uh, let's talk about those for, for a moment. The concept of, of retributive justice is the first one I'm, I'm, I'm looking at. Uh, retributive justice, which is meant to emphasize fairness, right? Retribution And that punishment of a crime must be in line with the offense, which is viewed as being chiefly against society and the moral law. Written law, but, but that's simply an extension of the moral law, whatever that is. But it's chiefly against society. Without this kind of justice, the law is deemed undermined, especially in the United States, where we are not a country run by royalty or a king, but by the rule of law. Immanuel Kant argued for the avoidance and minimization of any deterrence from the, the measure of due punishment, himself asserting what he acknowledged as the Pharisaic maxim, which is this, that it's better that one man should die than that the whole people should perish. And according to Kant, if justice and righteousness perish, human life would no longer have any value in the world, right? You let the law fall apart and it's all gone. This view, of course, comes under Foucault's critique of social control. Additionally, Rowan Williams, former Archbishop of Canterbury, has stated that a penal culture that doesn't explain how people change. So you can talk about the law, but Williams is saying a penal culture that doesn't explain how people change is, quote, worse than useless. Following R.A. Duff, uh, Rowan Williams wants a justice that is communicative, retributive, And formative. And by communicative and retributive, he does not mean to elevate social conformity as paramount or to manipulate offenders into docility, but so that a person can be able to to articulate these things in a language that can be heard and in a way that is not purely reactive and destructive. Trying to open things up. Okay, another form of, uh, so that's retributive justice. Another form of justice serving as an alternative to the repressive character of the above notion of justice is is a restitutive kind. Restitutive justice. David Garland uh, notes that most of today's, and I'm engaging a number of criminologists here, notes that most of today's penal laws and practices exhibit this this kind of justice where refractions are met with penalty fees, fines, and other measures for making compensation. Uh, This this idea of restitutive justice is is more concerned to restore the status quo ante, to try to get back to where we were beforehand, and compensate injured parties. It's more concerned with that than it is with asserting a moral code through punishment and repression, providing therefore a sense of personal reparation for the damage. And this way, uh, retributive forms of justice, largely administered by the state, whose tools seem largely measured in hard economic value items like monetary trade units, while missing entirely a deeper social and communal dimension. In its best forms, it seems possibly open to the idea of forgiveness, or at least uh, uh, expungement. Maybe you have a criminal record. You can get the thing sealed or sort of tossed away in some basement where the only people who can find it are the FBI if they really want to check up on you. But there's something of a, a, a you know to expunge that criminal record and that societal black mark, you know, to put on the box that you have been convicted of a felony, et cetera. But you can get away with that if if uh, if the restitutive thing can be can be done. You can sort of there, there's the quid pro quo. We're looking at this sort of economically values to sort of figure out how to, how to move forward. But this seems, I think, to be aiming more deeply for, for the next form. I don't think this is, you know, adequate. Neither of these forms are adequate, uh, these forms of justice, um, for at least what I'm trying to argue. But this leads us to the next, uh, uh, form of justice under consideration, at least in my paper, connected with the previous, uh with various features of reform, rehabilitation, and reconciliation. It's the notion of, notion of restorative justice. A lot of folks, I so was just in South Africa uh, this July, and spent some time in uh, Cape Town and visited a couple of the prisons, giving some lectures at the Baptist Seminary and with another liberal arts college uh, in Cape Town. And um, and the... Uh, uh, Good folks doing prison ministry were often teaching uh, these courses. were were coming up and offering some significant hope for folks. Uh, these restorative justice courses, right, trying to figure out how to how to do that, and it's it's Christian people who were who were doing it. Now, one form of this, uh, dependent on John Braithwaite's uh, communitarianism, this is an Australian criminologist, Braithwaite, shows its strength and necessity of expressions of face to face forgiveness. Uh, that's what needs to occur. And that's that's how restorative justice uh, uh, shows its power. If you can get the face-to-face forgiveness, it makes room, of course, for reintegrative sh- shaming, which Braithwaite uh, argues for, and and penance even. You know that that sort of uh, reconciliatory moment, uh, if 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 it can be had. Dealing with the pain of it all, which affirms also a corporate mutuality and interdependence right of victim and offender, Rowan Williams notes that if uh, if a crime is is failure in the mutuality and interdependence of a healthy community, only a theological vision of, of a different society can adequately address the problem. yet communitarianism I think that is that is not Augustinian. Recognizing our broken, sinful condition, while perhaps theological, it does need something to acknowledge the brokenness of the entire human condition and the immense lack within the human experience, even even the human experience like we have in Hollywood to imagine a different society that human experience that can think uh, perhaps out of our current narrative uh, a communitarianism that's that's uh, m- must rec- reckon with the vacuous nature of circumstances that led to the violation of the law in the first place. In other words, you can't deal with criminal justice without dealing with social justice issues, which uh, Michelle Alexander has highlighted, as has um, Catholic social theorist Amy Lavade uh, in her uh, challenging book recently, which I was on a panel reviewing in January in Syndicate Theology. If you're interested in Amy's work on a sacramental, Uh, response to penal theory I don't think it quite goes all the way you can see my response and I think lacks the ecclesial uh, dimension that she needs to really sustain it Uh, and in so many ways sort of still is working out of this colonial idea of sort of what, what we can do for those people what we can do for those people those people so now, while each of the various forms of justice bring that i'm i'm chronicling here uh bring with itself uh a kind of satisfaction eludes satis est which is the point of of the you know uh, what the law is meant to do it's meant to satisfy something there's a thing that's 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 problematic and needs to be reckoned with these forms of justice they bring a sort of forgiveness or at least inch toward one, the potential for such. But this raises a question about the nature of justice itself, I think. And whether forgiveness can play a role in criminal justice at all. Miroslav Wolf argues that while forgiveness must be received as a gift for it to be truly given, it also includes the repentance that comes from objectively identifying deeds as wrongs. Yet he argues that it can be extended even when there's no repentance, beyond Wolf's view of generous forgiveness, however, is something deemed more radical by, by some and even unfit for the political sphere. So I'm not sure, and I'm and, and, and not, argue, you know, uh, I don't know how this could work out in penal theory. I'll leave that up to those who are legislatures and other members of the justice system to sort this out in light of our own history. Especially the history of World War Two, and forgiveness granted to just say this generically to some nations and not others for various reasons. So we do have precedence for this. Hannah Arendt's vision of resumptive forgiveness then is 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 considered uh, considered next, and I I, I, th- I think I think you know. It's good what Wolf tries to do and, and some others to 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 think about the question, and it's an obscene uh, blasphemous thing to 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 sort of assert this as a way of uh, you know in my, in my university at California State University, Fullerton, I you know uh, in courses I teach on critical thinking and u uh, s history to to uh, bring up in academic conversation the the question of love is um is very difficult. But as a theologian I feel sort of obligated. And I think in it is a consideration for, for penal theory and wh- how we want to talk about the prison. Uh, but yet we've got to figure out the structure of what that could look like. Right? It's it's got to be more than just saying perhaps that can be part. I mean of course that's the church's witness. But if it might press into other cultural structures, That's, that's um, then we've got to do the, the responsible work for it. So I look to Hannah Arendt then and her notion of resumptive forgiveness. Uh, Arendt, of course, who is uh, very Augustinian <laughs> and, and very Pauline in, in so many ways. None of the above forms of justice, I think, can avoid the, the, puni- the, the punishment and public condemnation of anathematized individuals that characterize contemporary society which might be acknowledged as being as much about mechanisms of rulership as it is about expressions of its own societal sentiments. Hannah Arendt acknowledges the profound effects this can have on individuals. She says, without being forgiven, released from the consequences of what we've done, our capacity to act, as it were, becomes confined to one single deed from which we could never recover right that's the notion of uh that that, that Brian Stevenson is sort of going on about uh with his equal justice initiative you know sh- should we be defined by one the the worst thing we've ever done so uh i suppose we could wait for this later but i mean some of this comes from my own, my own story um and uh, and i i spent during the, the and i've written on this so you could find it somewhere uh uh, where I spent three years in a juvenile correctional facility in California during what was then referred to as the and what is referred to uh, as the the era of mass juvenile incarceration, where we had over ten thousand youth in California incarcerated in the pri- in the in the state system, and exploding plea bargains were all around. I mean, it's 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 business, you know. And uh, it's not that I didn't do wrong. I mean, I was part of a gang and and had, had grew up in a in a difficult spot and. Um, and 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 did a lot of wrong, uh, and a lot of things that I didn't get. Oh, I didn't get convicted for anything. I took a, one of those exploding plea bargains. You know, take this, or you might be looking at eight years. You know, and then you go through the system, which is meant to reform you. So it's the anger issues. It's violence. It's it's uh, whatever other social, uh, uh, you know, conformity they need to bring me back into um, to make me a appropriate citizen. Uh, you know, all these are, are 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 sort of. There and, and whenever I, I do speak at prisons, and I go into Folsom, and, and, and actually, the first question after I preached the sermon in a South African prison, and these are crazy places. man you know, I'd love to talk more about the South African prisons. And you, um, I mean, the pl- there's 73 prisons in South Africa, it's, it's extraordinary and harrowing when you look at the people who are there, they're the coloreds who are there. So that's the that's the majority of the country. That's the majority of the prison population. That's the majority of who's in poverty. So they're not black. They're white. They're colored. And uh, but the first question that somebody asked me after I preached a sermon was, um, "Hey, what were you in for?" <laughs> <laughs> I think I think he asked what'd you do? And I told him, of course. Uh, well, if I tell you, I have to kill you, right? So I, I did tell him that. But um, he he got it. And uh, so. It, it's a, it's a big problem and i think Hannah Arendt, Brian Stevenson and others are are dealing with this issue which is which is one simply of 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 we've all done wrong you know trying to figure out how we then do that now based on hannah arendt's notion of animal laborans and her theory of action which is a very complicated idea of of how public um movement takes place and the significance of of public action for um you know these these events and responsibility to society. Um, it's very complicated, so we won't survey that. But what she's doing is proposing that the act of forgiving is the only reaction that does not merely react, but acts, acts anew and unexpectedly. Unconditioned, unconditioned by the act which provoked it and therefore freeing from its consequences both the one who forgives and the one who is forgiven. This kind of forgiveness is is prompted by love. The only thing with the power to forgive, which is one of the rarest occurrences in human lives. It possesses an unrivaled power of self-revelation and clarity of vision, of the disclosure of who, Precisely because it is unconcerned to the point of total unworldliness with what the loved person may be, with his qualities and shortcomings, no less, with his achievements, failings, and transgressions. You hear Jean Bonnier, the French philosopher, often talking about this. Like there's what you do, right? PhD from l'Institut de Catholique de Paris, and he is a brilliant philosopher. But choosing to spend all of his days with people who have developmental disabilities and has built these living communities, right, large. And you're probably familiar with some of his work and, and Stanley Harros and and John Swinton's work on those with, with mental disabilities. And, and Vanier will often say, uh, you know, apart from what you do, there's you. Right? There's there's the you that is that is truly, truly you. So forgiveness is reckoning with with these things. Who and what the loved person may be. By reason of its passion, Hannah Arendt says, love destroys the in-between, which relates us to and separates us from others. By its very nature, then, love, on her account, is unworldly. And it is for this reason, rather than its rarity, that it is not only apolitical, but anti-political. Perhaps the most powerful of all anti-political human forces. Jonathan Rothschild develops this further in his commendation of a political act, political act of clemency, which he notes can can even effectuate a mechanism within the rule of law that can suspend the rule or law to support, uh, sorry, the rule that can suspend the rule of law to support social justice values and achieve wider goals on Rothschild's account, which he would include as reform, rehabilitation, restoration, or some combination. Accordingly, Rothschild argues, this signals new creation, by restoring the rule of law, reintegrating justice, mercy, and the common good, and empowering the participation of marginalized persons in the basic structures of society. Back into the basic structures of society. Unfortunately, as I'm surveying these, none of the visions have have provided, I think, an adequate place for, for religious experience yet with its various justice and forgiveness theories and its attendant features of individual and corporate moral formation, incidentally, while the state considers religious experience worth validating, or at least states states do that in this country, uh, and even nurturing, right, chaplains and religious services you can participate in, there is a long way to go before it might be deemed as the agent of moral change and transformation. Okay, so... In this paper, I, I go on to briefly um, survey a number of religious-oriented views. I mean, having taught a course on this prison religion, you know where all these considerations are, are at play. Uh, recent proposals have been have have been set forth for how prison rehabilitation or transformation can be accomplished by these religious experiences through established, sometimes coerced. You think of um, what's the Louisiana uh, uh, Angola chaplain's name? Bert Burl Kane is that his name. Burl Kane. Do you even know his name? I mean, he's a very uh, outspoken Christian man, and argues this stuff works. <laughs> you know, this I you know, I mean, there's I think some problems with that. Um, but some are, are are making that argument that that uh, 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 that faith-based institutions as well. Uh, re- so religion in prisons and faith-based institutions, faith-based prisons even. Uh, a lot of those around can supplement state efforts to educate criminals for reform. Luke Bretherton uh, acknowledges a faith-based community called Kainos, which has been given freedom to run individual wings of, of pr- uh, particular British prisons. And we know um, from Winifred Sullivan's work that uh, Prison Fellowship has done this as well, funding uh, wings. And this happens in other countries, specifically Brazil, Rio. Uh, we know of, of a number of uh, prison churches where basically the the religious group just takes over the whole thing and there aren't even any guards in there. <laughs> it's just the prison, church, running some of these these things with their own laws and rules and, and so on. Now I suspect Michel Foucault's critique would apply to each of, of these uh, religious structures in the prisons or, or as imposed religious structure on prisoners, faith-based prison. I suspect Foucault's critique applies there as well as to other contemporary models which which basically finds more machinery by which modern individualism constructs its truth and signaling the dark side of utopian dreams of citizenship, community, and individual autonomy especially when it's not realized. While these proposals then highlight the importance of community and religious experience, they hardly avoid the consumerist impulses as well that have so jaded legal systems in the West. So what I am, am trying to argue for then, this takes you right, I think, to the, to the heart of my argument, and I'll, I'll unpack that for the next 15 minutes or so. A theological vision of the prison is missing. And it remains absent from a lot of this work that I've just surveyed, uh, however wonderful some of it's been. So the theological vision of the prison church uh, beyond the sacramental even Timothy Gorringe, British theologian, has offered a he 's offered a distinctly theological vision of, of an imagined community called Church, which he says is not to be understood as the community of redemption and reconciliation in Toto, but it is so sacramentally similar to Amy Lavode since it has at the heart of its gospel a praxis of costly forgiveness which was founded on betrayal and the survival of betrayal, and yet which creates new sensibilities and possibilities. As the only solution he sees for dealing with human feckleness and the evil encountered in humanity, Gorringe sets forth an argument for the church's role in offering an alternative social space, which might be, he calls, quote, the redemptive alternative to retribution. Now, taking the sacramental vision further, Gorringe later develops it in a, matter, in a manner that envisions prison walls as permeable, sort of open with prisoners being encouraged to be part of the community of faith and community of faith taking part in many activities in the prison. So in other words, not just the chaplain, but all the members of the church coming and being part of the prison life and somehow the prisoner being a part of the life of the church, not just the chaplains uh, having the chaplains ear. This moves beyond the involvement, uh, merely as I say, of a a chaplain and and team to that entire body of Christ. Now Goran asserts that only a real recognition of the of the permeability of prison walls, will enable society as a whole to accept that the prison is part of the wider community. In other words, these are still Americans. In that right, like these are still part of us. That's kind of what Gorens, of course, being British, he's he's arguing that on a in, you know, these are still part of our collective uh, nation. Uh, Gorange assumes, of course, that the church and not merely the chaplain belongs in the prison, as I said before, and, 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 and that the entire uh, Christian community of which the chaplain is representative and of which the chaplain witnesses to is, is the true minister of those in, in prison. Now, before presenting further features of Gorange's view here, I think, I think his work has is, is, is been very important on um, atonement and uh, how that applies to what's happening in the prison penal theory. But my argument can best begin, I think, its formulation in contradistinction to what we've seen thus far. Prison walls, for example, uh, on Gorin's account, the permeability of them, as if, if, if anyone who's ever been behind them knows, they are not, they're neither permeable nor porous. Those walls are fixed. Securing the integrity of the prison community within its own rules for life and governance, which cannot be altered by external means. Gorange's view convolutes betraying what it means to be a community member, I think, doing potential violence to factors that have consciously shaped the individuals and communities held within the prison walls and seems to suggest a hint of colonialism. I'm not saying there's not violence already being done on them anyway from the state uh, and and internally, uh, but we don't need more of the church doing that. It's also not the external ecclesial community on on the streets, as it were, the the church on the streets, which is the true minister to to prisoners, as Goran's would would have. The unique place, the minister to prisoners, is reserved exclusively for the Holy Spirit, who ministers to prisoners in limitless ways creating and sustaining new life and bringing about the moral transformation bequeathed by the gospel of God's love. Furthermore, the church already exists, and this is the key statement of my argument, the church already exists there, in the prison, and must be recognized as such, lest the Spirit's work of constituting the church by sovereign appropriation of the gospel of God's grace disclosed in Jesus Christ be undermined. Now something of, of the weakness of Gorange's model I think is further seen when the gospel minister is said to be, on Gorange's account, the gospel minister is said to be, to, uh, uh, to be called, called to show courtesy even to the most wretched and unlovable creature, whereby which he or she really acts as alter Christus, another Christ, right? And, and breaks the mold of objectifying hard man, cynical behavior. Right, sort of standing in as, as a Christ figure there, as a, as a minister. Now again, the work of the Spirit alone to do these things need not be labored, in making my argument. But the evangelistic role that Gorange asserts for the visitor of prisoners is far better reconceived, I think, as, as the model from Ephesians 4, 11 to 14, where gifts divinely given to the church are placed in serving service of, of equipping, training, and facilitating the church, the church in prison to become all that God would have it be and thereby affirming the true humanity of prisoners insofar as Christ's body is there in the prison. Christ, the true human, is in the prison with the other human prisoners. This model also provides the opportunity to show how various penological and forgiveness theories are subversively fulfilled in the ecclesial vision of the sanctifying transformation into Christ's likeness that the Spirit is bringing about in the church. This modus operandi then of, of, of the various prison churches has always, I think, had ecclesial formation as an essential feature of its remit insofar as it has always been part of the church's remit for all of its members who are forgiven inasmuch as they are united to Christ and he is crucified, risen from the dead, ascended, and returning for them. Like in living in the light of this reality, they're being transformed by it. This vision coincides with the mandate for the church to go, teaching all Christ's commands to all people, especially to societies marginal and hardened. It affirms humans as essentially ecclesial beings, arguing for a stronger corporate solidarity view between the established churches and incarcerated churches, viewing the prison church as equally called, gathered, endowed, and sent in missionary contexts wherein the church is called to love and serve. This, of course, ventures beyond Gorringe's model where the gospel minister extends to prisoners the fellowship of what Jesus constituted as a society of friends. It sees greater corporate solidarity than this. In synergistically creative and boundary-crossing ways like those that earlier birthed new concepts of solidarity, as seen in the marvelous and beautiful first century idea found especially in Paul, right, where he innovates this term, Adelphoi. This, of course, is more than the combination of love and respect, which, which Gorringe locates in the concept of friendship. It's inseparable familial bond, whether fraternal, filial, or par- parental. All of them, I think, apply. Prisons then represent unique mission contexts with unique localized expressions of church that ought to be resourced and served by the church on the streets for its ongoing life in community. This then suggests a reciprocal relationship between church qua church in both the the reality of the life of the church, localized, in both its incarcerated and non-incarcerated local expressions. I'm not asking the questions of what people have done to get in prison. I don't care. those are other sort of pastoral questions. But but when you're doing the ecclesiology of the thing, um, it needs to be stated, I think, emphatically that these things are the same, just in different contexts. With those particular particularities that will shape the questions that, you know, are are part of the tonalities and rhythms of any local church, just like they are in any local instantiation of the body of Christ. This vision then stresses the significance, I think, of the church's understanding of its of, of itself as informal community governor. Right, it can govern its own affairs. Right, we're going to judge angels. Can't you sort out your own stuff? This, of course, community governance uh, is seen in the prison with communities gangs. Uh, my colleague uh, David Scarbeck uh, has argued that every incarcerated person is is part of these gangs in some way or another, uh, whether they 're formal members or not now, whatever local then and privatized forms of justice operative in the prison might might also come under the critique of lacking the democratic process, although democracy itself has bequeathed some of the world's most detestable criminals. I hope that in some, some of this then, and, and I could unpack it further, this, this, this view of the prison church, it offers a more missiologically sound approach to care of incarcerated offenders, which is already being done in various ways, but can be done better. The drive-by approach to prison work and I get these emails I just got one two nights ago from a colleague um, uh, who teaches at a liberal arts college and who says, "You know i got a student who uh, wants to be a prison chaplain. can i Can you give him some of your stuff you've written?" And I, I always sort of cringe. Um, not that I think we, you know we do need good chaplains, uh, but probably good chaplains um, who can who can think on their feet and are very connect, very well connected uh, to their local churches. In theory they are, but when you're gone every Sunday it becomes very, very difficult. Uh, we probably need a rotating band of chaplains if, if that, although I'm, I'm I'm skeptical of the whole business because they are primarily ministers of the state. That's who pays them. So, you know, I think we could talk about a number of other things here, but but this drive-by approach to pr- to prison work where you can, and the, and the chaplains, you know, they can't, the one thing that they can't do, and you can't do if you're visiting a prison, you, you can't, uh, commit the, the great sin of over-familiarity. With the pr- like you can't, maybe you can't give them your real name. And, and this is, you know, New Orleans Seminary. I mean, they, they, and, and I, I teach adjunct at, at Golden Gate. Uh, you know, they, they go in and, but can't give them the real name. I think. So again, you, you, the institutional structures that are challenged here is, that's not where the ecclesiology is. So that's not the kind of vision that I'm trying to articulate about the the, the theology of what's really happening. So that that drives my approach then to prison. It, you know, it does some good things, but that effort is often short-circuited by a wider ecclesial community, often lacking resources to thoroughly integrate parolees uh, when folks get out. So the church is thereby unwittingly contributing to recidivism rates while failing to both grant the rehumanized status that the incarnation grants to incarcerated individuals. Which in turn provides the tool, tools for thick anthropological description, the complexities of the human experience that ultimately find human telos in Jesus Christ, and a robust, redignified sanctification into his image. This transposition of prisoner status occurs in the manner where, I'd want to argue, in moving people from shame to honor, God cleanses the defiled, clothes the naked. Enriches the poor, returns the exiled, strengthens the weak, heals the sick, raises the dead, exalts the humbled, adopts the orphans, blesses the cursed, accepts the rejected, makes wise the foolish, liberates the oppressed and imprisoned, frees the slaves, reconciles enemies, gives life to the barren, gives citizenship, and you think of women in prison, gives citizenship to the foreigner and gives an inheritance to those without a birthright. The honoring replicated in the above images reveals how God actually saves people from ignominy, but also serves as metaphorical depictions of spiritual transformation and the reality that, that those in the church experience which is not restorative forgiveness, but but resumes the work that God is doing in the world to heal what is broken through Jesus Christ, consistent with the promise held out in the Christian gospel. And it highlights the dignity that Jonathan Simon has been arguing for, dignity. But now on an elevated plane, highlighting the intrinsic value and worth of every human being created in the image of God. Now in conclusion, on, on, on one hand, there remains the need, I think, for the church to echo the need for justice and for the restraining of evil Uh, safety Keith mentioned (laughs) and and, uh, President Obama has mentioned Uh, society does need to be defended from certain people serial killers extreme forms of mental illness and, and so on For the church to call for, for the removal and even punitive discipline for criminal acts of such societal anomalies is not beyond the reach of the church's prophetic calling to speak against injustice in its varying shades. The need, on the other hand, to show that justice needs to be done for the victims of crime and injustice also remains a feature of the church's confession and marks the church's action as it faithfully witnesses to and labors unto the reality set forth in its hope. But so is the affirmation of the humanity of both the offender and the offended. Acknowledging that we are all members of one another. And yet we have a better model for this. I think the model is church. The church. And within the incarcerated situation are, I think, localized expressions of the body of Christ that can benefit from resourcement by the church at large. And for whose welfare It is both our privilege and responsibility to care. So I'm arguing why you should care. None, of course, are ever completely restored during this life. And yet in the church, whatever we are in our sanctification is done together or not at all. Thank you.
1: Well, we've got uh, about 15 minutes. I've got a couple of questions, but I wanted to see if, uh, if you have questions first um, just so that we could uh, use our time best. So does anyone have a question you want to lead us off with?
2: Thanks for that. Um, I guess one clarification and then maybe like a, a question. Now, do you foresee this kind of vision of the prison church as um, a voice speaking to the culture, as like an example of how to reform, or do you see it as something that, uh, or a conceptualization of culture itself? Because mm-hmm. um, at times I was a little confused mm-hmm. um, for that, so clarification with that. And then the second one would be, how do you integrate passages like excommunication, where mm-hmm. it can, like, say a person in the church is a consistent yeah. Offender, yeah. Uh, and and says remove them from your body, from your from yeah. your ecclesia.
0: Yeah, I I thought that w- the second one especially uh, especially in light of nine marks being here, <laughs> like <laughs> yeah, don't let them do prison ministry, um, uh, because uh, because it's a unique context in the prison. I mean, you know they're not shot callers like the gangs. It's a different it's a different but they stand sort of over and against as a as a critical witness to um i do think in that sense uh and and the, and they you know when i i'm just going to rely on sort of my own I'll, I'll I'll slow down on sort of more of the theologizing of it because i i mean i when i visit prisoners and ask leaders uh in the churches how some of these things work they're very complicated um and Uh, very fluid with who the leaders are because again they're not shock callers like you know you don't have sort of your pastor your elder you do and you don't right who you have it well who put it there well you know here's who put it there the uh the chaplain right who appoints (laughs) the the elders who have special privilege and they come to the chapel now those might not be the spiritual leaders at all in fact they might make the rest of the church quite jealous and the whole Way this thing unpacks is it becomes becomes very complicated, and these are people who have killed people, right? So it's very, I mean, not all of them, of course, but uh, but in the prison, people are also dying. Like it's a very real, radical, you know, community where if the church is going to be the church, you've either got to be in or out. So. So that does bring in how church discipline works, and there's probably some resources, I think, in, 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 in more of the early churches, the uh, way it, it um, you know brought its members in, sort of catechized for a short, uh, lengthy time, actually, before they became full members. But there are different ways that folks do this, and, and I would say one bad way is one that we know with, with one of these uh, sort of Pentecostal wings in, in a Brazilian prison. Where they have this uh this couple rules for being a part of the church, uh one of those rules being you can't have any debts right so if you owe anybody anything in the prison, be it sex, be it whatever money i mean uh, the uh, the way the economy works there uh has all these things at play that you can get anything in there anything. Know, you know, I don't know if you heard. Of it, there was there was a the odd moment where uh, Charles Manson got a cell phone. You know, and Charles Charles Manson got a smartphone. Uh, and there they are. Uh, so in that sense, the, you know the you know the, the, the thing's very complicated. But but to have as a requirement for church membership to have all your debts canceled raises some sociological problems, right? Uh, that I think. I think uh, I, I did ask uh, one of the leaders in the in, in, in prison church who I spent some time with uh, and have been working with who's spent decades in prison in his 70s now. Uh, and I asked about the question of debt. And he said, um, he goes, yeah, you know, we, we weigh it. Like if we watch the person, so we, we weigh it. And he said, sometimes we'll actually pay it off. Like if but it's you know so they're by prayer trying to dis- discern with wisdom what to do, so so church discipline becomes sort of falls into that rubric of 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 how I think uh, on my research, folks would want to depend on the spirit for how to deal with situation, but it is a pretty strong community of solidarity inside the first question was, I can't remember the first question again mm-hmm. sorry. Yeah. Because that's the second one on church discipline, but the first um, one. Um,
2: yeah, cl- just a clarification. Yeah. Because um, <clears throat> it started out, your your talk started out with broader conceptions of right justice and of and, justice and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. how to deal with like the penal system. So, a clarification: right. is this something that you see particular a vision for the prison church as a witness to, or like a, you know speaking truth to power around it, or as a larger conceptualization for how to deal with incarceration in general?
0: I guess all that. Um, okay. And and uh, I mean, the, what's the role of a theologian, right? Like a theologian's. T- I mean, I teach in the state university, though. But I'm ordained, and my colleagues know that. Uh, and my work is, you know, I write on three things: I write on the prison, I write on on, on California, and I write on on evangelicalism and its own internal conceptualities, i.e., theology. Uh, so when I and and they all work together. <laughs> one th- so as as a, as an ordained minister. Uh, you know, within the Evangelical Free Church of America, uh, we, my, my primary calling is to serve the church, right, which is the most significant actor in the public square, so, and in the prison. And part of that task is serving the church so that it articulates its theology better. You know, so I'm trying to help the church do that by, by, by doing my own ethnographic research mixed with the theological reflection to help, because they're not as resourced, right? They don't have the libraries we have. They don't have, you know, the kind of some of. I mean, they're really smart people. Um, you know, anybody who can imagine a better world, uh, crime, uh, you know, and try to organize crime. I, I mean, is is not a dummy, uh, and and especially the the logical structures that are 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 sped up. Uh, you know, gang leaders could have been CEOs easily. Major structures that are that are being worked out. So, but I want to try to help my brothers and and sisters that I know in in the prison, you know, do it better. And it's their voices though that I'm I'm more you know, I mean they need to tell us what they need and what's happening there uh, amid amid the difficulties of and constraints right which are very real. Uh, they start growing too much. I start being more f- you know familiar with somebody uh The state wants to cut that off, and the state sort of uh it ebbs and flows with access uh and and closing access right with these mass prisons we have now and very secretive things they were but there 's still the structure going on inside and what I want to say is that those are those are real communities yes, there are people, you know real parents and other things like that in there, but they 're real contexts which work with their own rules that we don't know much about. We know a lot less than we think we know about that. But they know. And if there's a church in there, right, I mean, th- they're they're already being transformed and, and I think we need to not cut in on that but try to help insofar as we can. A lot of that means probably more hands off, more recognition. But whether that will have policy implications or whether that will have, uh, you know, I, I mean, I've been working with a Jewish scholar on on trying to uh, 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 see some prisoners' texts published, uh, but we have a long history of that too. I mean, right, Nelson Mandela. <laughs> you know, right? <laughs> long walk to freedom. I mean, you have you have you have this Bonhoeffer, You know, letters later published. And uh, but could but do we have future? I mean, this is just a question. Do we have future Bible translators? Do we have future? Uh, you know, do we have novelists? Do we have theologians? Of course we do. Now, so how, what? What sort of voice ought they to have in the public these are these are questions that I think are uh, should should be somewhere on our minds especially because most of them are going to get out and get jobs we hope and resume family life and and so on
1: any other questions
3: yeah thanks again you're doing really important work and just for our students here that might be interested in um, the work that you're doing, um, a lot of these guys I think maybe are in an ecclesiology seminar. Nice. Um, remember that seminar that you're taking now or have already taken? Um, huh. I wonder in this field of research on the church in the prison or the prison church, um, is there work that's been done comparing it to historic marks of the church, thinking back to one holy, catholic, apostolic? Or Reformation standards um it seems like your work is more just kind of recognizing ontologically that the church exists in the prison. Are you trying to establish something more historically to identify the structure of that church and how it exists compared to these historic marks um or do you see that that's work someone else that needs that needs to be doing this
0: uh yeah the no in fact that's the, that's sort of the book I'm hoping to write <laughs> uh, um, is trying to ske- i mean if I sketched it for you, it basically has two parts one that in and, and, and a very cursory fashion gives a, a history of the of, of the church's relationship to the prison. you know all the early followers in the first century thought they would be on the margins you know in prison or you know, I mean the jail looked a lot different than it than the what we, we've built. You know, in the sort of post Enlightenment, um, post that 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 um, post Medieval period, you know, after the I mean, but the church is always with the monastic prisons. I mean, that's where a lot of these, uh, uh, you know, serious uh, inflictions of punishment for crime came from. I mean, earlier than that, it was all you know swift, just. You know, you, you you never spent time in prison. You know, you never the punishment was you know it was quick. Now, of course, if you look at the early vision of the earliest vision of, of the Hebrews, there was no there was no prison in that vision, I and mean, there was a jail that was down in Egypt. Like so, <laughs> you know, early on, you know, it comes in it comes in later, um, and so that that is another question that theology can pose. Like, should there be even be a prison? And those are any question we want to ask is fair game for if all. Contingent reality uh, uh, you know exists under Christ. any question so there 's the historical bit though of sort of especially taking what happens with the Quakers in in, in you know late eighteenth century britain and, and with, with Jeremy Bentham and other uh, Chris, well uh, John Howard in England and others who are trying to reform the jails, reform the prisons. Uh, that kind of funnels into early America, but then gets, it, it, it continues to get co-opted. So I wrote an article that Marge and Ailey Review of Books published called uh, Reform, Relapse, Repeat, and uh, where I sort of chronicle and, 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 and survey the current moment of reform where I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful, I mean, I'm working together with some of these reformers on, on trying to think of how to address the prison problem, which is out of control. Uh, but I'm not very hopeful for their work. I I think I mean I want to see them succeed as much as anybody. Uh and I applaud their efforts, but I'm I'm not going to celebrate anything until the thing is really really dismantled. And I'm not entirely a, an abolitionist like some of my colleagues are and and but I do think with with what Michelle Alexander's called the new Jim Crow, where we put African American men especially i mean they 're disproportionately in, in the prison, clearly uh, it even goes for California, which is a latino state latino prison population we have twenty nine percent African Americans in prison you think twenty nine percent well that 's less, but there 's only twelve percent African Americans in the state okay um, African American you know so do the math it, it i mean there there are there are systemic injustice issues with w- with what's happening with our social structures, the way we build, get what become ghettos, and social projects. And, 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 and prison is also big business. Starbucks, Victoria's Secret, of course your license plates, and other things like that. I remember how shocked my students were when I informed them that the desks that they were sitting on were made in prisons, because the state university, and we're the largest state university system uh, in the world, um, we had a contract to buy them from the prisons at top dollar. So you're squeezing out the. I mean, this has been going on for a long time, though. So it's it's it. You know, jailers early in in Britain didn't even receive a salary because they got enough kickbacks <laughs> from the charity of Christian people who, uh, without without which, uh, pr- prisoners didn't have the ability to eat or have clothes or avoid. Um, being uh, scarred by hot irons, the poking fees that Christian people would come and pay the jailer off so that they wouldn't uh, uh, subject the prisoners to to abuse. Uh, this is a jungle, and by the way, speaking about prison guard, I mean the jailer. Because you know, nobody's nobody's untainted by this thing. You know, the, and they'll talk about in California the the prison guard. You know, being the 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 Department of Corrections being the 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 peace officers, being the—that's the biggest gang in the th- in the thing—and mm-hmm. they've got their own union and it's significant power. And a book just came out um, by Josh Page at University of Minnesota called *The Toughest Beat*, on at least that that prison guard union. It's just a very complicated system that's going to require. And a lot of the thinking now is, well, let's, let's let people out, let's let them go home, twenty-four-seven, but monitor them twenty-four-seven. Let take them out of that environment, at least, so they're not abused to the internal structures. But now they're. You know, m- m- you know, mass surveillance, watching, watching us all the time, and and uh, I mean, other proposals are on the table too. With well, well, we need to separate those with mental health issues from the real serious criminals. So what do we do there? And LA County just proposed. Well, we build another prison for them, of course. <laughs> you know, so my my, uh, it's it's beyond cynicism. Uh, you know, we we've been we've been around this. I mean, we had more reform efforts going in the '60s uh, than we do now, and the thing just, you know, just took off, and 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 especially in my state, you know, which nobody imagined in the '60s would become a prison state and the biggest prison state in the world. So I'm I'm any any t- I get nervous about reform talk because. Often the people who come into those conversations have other ends in mind, and this is where also back to your issue. I think the church. So my my book will will chronicle. Sorry, back to the <laughs> uh, the history of the church's relationship to the prison in the first half of of, of the bit, and then the second half will be aiming to give a, a constructive, uh, ethno theological account of of the incarcerated church, so its own ecclesiology for what it for what it is. Uh, and some of that will be in conversation with the, the marks of the of, the, of the one holy Catholic apostolic. In fact, that's, that's. but what I'm going to do is read, read the creed backwards. So it's the spirit that constitutes the church by forgiveness. Remember this idea of you commit a crime. What's somebody doing when they commit a crime? You're longing for another world. Same thing we do when we vote. Right? You, you want this continuum, whatever it is, to end and start anew. Like, right? life you're looking for life everlasting. So it's 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 the spirit, right? That's the third article, right, which which, which constitutes church there. With that, with the act of forgiveness, granting that, and then you know, unites you know, uh the uh uh you know believers uh you know to Christ as part of the body that's there, incarcerate Jesus, my, you know, you done that mm-hmm. I'm there. So that vision. Uh and then also having, of course, God as Father, uh so it's bigger than just the marks but but the whole creed, um, and a lot of these guys you know you look at it they they 're the fatherless generation right now. Uh, dad wasn't home and 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 so that you know the way the way then the theology of this thing might critique a lot of what's happening in society um, but that's not the, it's not our job to change po- policy it's just our job to be the church <laughs> right.
1: I've got one question, but I wanted to see if. Anyone else have a question before I ask my, my question? would be the last question. Anything? Well, part of the work of theology is um, my own personal spiritual formation. Mm-hmm. And as we're thinking about the church and the incarcerated church, I wonder in your own personal journey and spiritual formation and your own understanding of the church, mm-hmm. your local expression mm-hmm. where you worship, how engaging with the incarcerated church has helped you understand and appreciate um, your own local expression what does that taught you about uh, where you gather
0: you, as part of the non-incarcerated church it's strange really strange and i i interact less with the incarcerated church that it's when people often ask like do you do prison ministry and that's what well, I, but i did three years so like <laughs> does that count i think that counts and and I write on it, you know. Um, it's funny. I just had a woman who's a PhD student at Fuller Seminary email me, uh, and she re- she's presenting a an, an essay, a paper at some conference somewhere. And she said, "Hey, would you take a look at this?" And emails me out of the blue. And I, and she said, uh, hey, "I read your article on Ecclesia Incarcerate or something that I published in Theology this spring." And, and she said, um, "And I was a member of the uh, Ecclesia Incarcerate for." For thirty something years, you know, and I think it's thirty years. You know, you could do three on your, you know, standing on your head. Um, and and find myself. Uh, I I do think there is a a reality happening in in the prison church that the non-incarcerated church that we like. There's a life I experienced uh, in my early life in Christ, and maybe it's the same for all of us in our early life in Christ. That was a lot sweeter than the life <laughs> I enjoy now. <laughs> um, that was a lot. That was it. Was much more formative and raw and scary, but uh, rejuvenating and and energizing than than I uh, than I experience now. I mean, I live in the suburbs. You know, the, you know my church was built on white flight and comfort, ease of being out of the city and away from people. And, uh, and I go to an ev-free church, and it's, you know. So, but, uh, so I, I, and I think that consciousness, while, while some have a, a, an awareness of, of there's an in incarceration and some of the work I do in the university, um, it by and large doesn't, doesn't permeate, I think. And I don't know if that's your experiences, but, but, but often, um, and I am encouraged by sort of the next generation, but often, uh, I want to go, I, I'd, I'd much rather be sort of back in the prison, hanging out with prison church members and i know for me that's not real cuz i'm not in there right there's a lot like there's things going on there that so i can't you know i do that and it probably mess me up or mess them up if <laughs> i if i did it if i did it uh more and more so but that's a that's a difficult question uh keith um i think i think it feels like what what i feel is is something of a responsibility though to help um, those in there feel like they are the church uh because I, I, on that point, as well as you know, when folks are released, I, th- I think the church, large by and large, has contributed. And we know this story too of as I started, I'll perhaps end on this. Um, a researcher at Cambridge um, did a PhD a couple of years ago and studied uh, prisoners in Texas who who were who participated in, who were Christians and participated in a program that partnered them up with local church members. And it became really difficult uh, in one case because the church that this individual, upon release from prison, became a part of back home, uh, had an elder in that church who was actually his victim. Now, there wasn't a problem for the church. It wasn't a problem for the, the, the you know, person who served time, nor was it a, a problem for the elder. It was a problem for the judge. Right? You cannot be within, right? And so that, that's where, where I think this, this issue of how we as church, how they as church, how we need to build deeper senses of solidarity with the incarcerated church, uh, you know, in light of so many impulses that have sent us different messages,